It's great to be here with you this morning. We're in our second week in our series, Recalling the Journey, uh, recognizing that God invites all of us to do uh, life with him on this journey that he calls us to embark on uh, with him. But we understand that everyone's unique, but there's at least four crucial steps that, that each of us take as we journey with Christ, at least that he invites us to take with him. Last week, we looked at the first step, which was to believe. Uh, when we come to Christ, when we receive him as Lord and Savior, and we looked at the fact that those of us who know Christ take part in that step as we uh, reach people with the love and message of Jesus Christ. But once a person takes a step to believe, when they enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, uh, something changes, uh, their position changes. In fact, uh, it's, it's fitting that we celebrate baptism this morning because baptism is really a celebration uh, of the second step, and that's belonging that we truly do belong to God and in his church. And as people are baptized and next services are baptized, they're, they're doing a few things. They're, they're sharing their identity in Christ, their identification in Christ, but they're also making a public declaration that I belong to God and that I belong to his church. When you choose Jesus, you may not have realized, but you also chose to be a brother or sister to a whole family of God that spans time. And so I've said this before, whether you knew it or not, when you became a Christian, you became my brother or sister, like it or not. That's sort of the way it goes. And, and God calls us into this relationship with him and, and one another. One of the many things that are common to every person throughout the world, no matter what culture they find themselves in, is, is really a desire to belong. Belonging is, is hardwired in our DNA. Now, I want to take a moment and acknowledge something really important. I realize that in this desire to belong that some of us have, have been hurt. In fact, the reality of it is hurt people often hurt people. I also recognize in our desire to belong that some of us have probably done some crazy things in our life, maybe even some shameful things. And, and perhaps there are even some here this morning that because of their desire to belong and because of the hurt that they have felt, They've come to a place in their life where they said, I don't need anybody. I don't need anyone in my life. And, and yet the reality of it is that's just a protective mechanism. But there's good news. The good news is that when we come to Christ, he empowers us to walk with him. He leads us on his journey with him. And he allows us to embrace what it truly means to belong to him and his family, his church. Here's the simple truth. Believers belong to God in his church, and are to be raised in understanding what that means. When we come to Christ, uh, we're redeemed. What's that mean? It means Jesus really purchased us with his blood when he died on the cross. We're, we're made a new creation. We're adopted as children of God, no longer uh, being alone, but literally having God as our father and a church family that spans time and spans the, the planet. That, that we're heirs to God's kingdom and kingdom resources. And it's our new position in Christ that ought to draw us to Christ and ought to draw us to this desire to learn what does it mean to belong to him? What does it really mean to belong to his church? So to gain a better understanding of this, we're going to look at a prayer of Jesus. John records it for us in, his seven, in the 17th chapter of his gospel. So if you have your Bibles or, or maybe you're going to follow along in an app or on the screen, we're going to be in John 17, starting at verse 20. But this is a prayer recorded of Jesus. In context, it's a snapshot. 
Let me give you a snapshot of what's going on. It's, this prayer happens just mere hours before he is to be betrayed, unjustly tried, tortured, and crucified. It takes place in an upper room. And in John chapter 13, we see Jesus do something quite remarkable. He washes his disciples' feet. Then he makes the new covenant in his blood. Then in John 14 through 16, still in the upper room, Jesus shares sort of last minute instructions with his disciples. Then John chapter 17, Jesus prays what has become known as his high priestly prayer. It's it's the longest continuous prayer of Jesus mentioned in the gospels. And remember, Jesus prays this prayer before he's about to face betrayal, rejection, and death for which he came into the world. Now, what's amazing to me, what's, what's really moving to me is to realize that in the final hours before his passion, where he would die for the sins of us all, his followers were on his heart. He prays many things in the prayer, but mostly he prays over them. He prays over us. Jesus says, John 17, 20, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. In other words, Jesus not only prayed for his disciples who were there in the upper room, but he had a vision way beyond them. Jesus prayed for those who would come to faith through their testimony. Think about it. He prayed for us. When he prayed, he wasn't just praying for his immediate disciples, but disciples for all time, those who would put their faith in him. Notice that Jesus made no distinction between those who personally heard him and those who would hear the word through others or or even reading it through his word. Then Jesus prays, verse 21. We may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. When Jesus prays this, he's praying this again over all of his disciples, and he's praying for unity. When Jesus prayed that they all may be one, he envisioned all the peoples of the earth before the great throne of God. You know, people of, 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 of every, every race and every nation, of every social class, of, uh, uh, of all differences, just sort of coming together and worshiping God. Jesus prayed that all believers might rise above their different backgrounds and understand their unity in him. Now here's a question. What makes unity so hard? What makes it so difficult? Well, the simple answer is sin. When sin entered the world, it caused division. In fact, we see it immediately when Adam and Eve sin, but there's even a division between them and God. The first thing they do is hide. Now, by the way, if you're going to play hide and seek, don't do it with God. He's going to find you. In fact, if you're going to play games, don't do it with God. He always wins, you know, but sin divides us. Now, here's the reality. The perfectly holy, the perfectly Christ-like would be perfectly united. And maybe even as I said that, you you sit back and you say, well, Craig, the only person who was ever perfect was Jesus. And yeah, that's true. (laughs) That's true. So so what's our hope? And, And the hope is this, that the more like Christ believers are, the more like Christ believers are, the more they will love their Lord and one another. And the closer their union they will have with each other. Think about that for a minute. The more like Jesus we are, the more we'll understand his love and love others and the more united we are. 
Now, by the way, that's not just a principle for God's church. It's a principle for every single relationship. If you're here this morning and, and you're married, you know, husband and wife, and here you are sitting here, and here's the reality. The more like Christ you become, the more of God's love you will have and the more united you'll be with each other. Maybe you're here as a family and you have children and parents, and the reality of it is the more like Jesus your family becomes, the more you understand the love of God, the more you allow the love of God to flow through you and the more united you will be. It's just a reality. In fact, remember, Jesus is asked, what's the greatest commandment? By the way, what a great question. That would have been my question for Jesus at that time. Because in the, in the Jewish tradition of the day, there were so many commands and there were like sub-commands to those commands. So like the scripture wasn't enough. They actually went in and, and had whole commentaries on every other command and spelled it all out. I mean, it was so burdensome. And so what's the greatest command? You know, if I, if I have to hit one, Jesus, what is that one? And it's recorded for us in Matthew 22, 37 through 39. Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment, he said, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. I love this. By the way, this wasn't a new command. A, a devout Jews in the days of Jesus would have prayed this every day, twice a day, actually. They would say, Lord, help me love you with all my heart, mind, soul, and strength. Help me love my neighbor as myself. And, and what Jesus is saying is if you obey this command, if you obey these two commands, you're obeying all of Scripture. That, that, that when you look at all the commands, they can be summed up. And if you love God, and if you love others, then you're not going to lie to God or others. If you love God and love others, you're not going to covet their things. If you love God and love others, you're just not going to get mad and kill somebody. I mean, that's, that's what he's saying. He's saying if you, if, you, if you love God and love others, then there's going to be a unity that cre is created. Simply put, God's love, God loves us. He's love and he loves us. And we're to love God and others with the love he's given us. And he calls us to be very strong conduits, if you will, of his love. Not just absorbers of his love, but conduits of it. That his love flows through us, fills us up, and then sprouts from us. It sort of goes out from us to those who are near us. Now back to our passage. Notice that the unity Christ prays over us is like that between God the Father and God the Son. Jesus prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me, and I am in you. Jesus prays that our unity would follow the pattern of the unity of the Godhead, specifically this relationship between God the Father and God the Son. If the Father is in Christ and Christ is in us, then the Father is in us. We're drawn into this very life of God, and the very life of God is love. Unity among the body of Christ, his church, was and is very important to Jesus. So when he prayed, just as you, Father, are in me and I am in you, he's also speaking of the truth, the foundation to unity. And he's stating that the foundation to our unity is the same as the foundation of the unity between the Father and the Son. And that's this, equality of person. As Bible-believing Christians, we understand that there's one true God, one true God who eternally exists in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. This is the doctrine of the Trinity. Each of the three persons is fully God. The, the Father is fully God, the, the Son is fully God, the, the Spirit is fully God, yet there's only one God. 
The three persons are equal in nature, power, will, and glory. And they each share in the divine glory, uh, in the divine nature of God. Now, by the way, if you're sitting there going, huh? Join history. <laughs> that, that, that there's a mystery to the Trinity. There, there's enough of scripture explaining it to us that we can understand it enough to believe, enough to walk in it, enough to learn what we need to learn. But the reality of it is there is a mystery to it. One God, three persons. Yet, how, do we, how does our understanding, how does what we know of the Trinity help us understand as believers our relationship to one another? Well, we looked at this a bit last week because we are on equal footing before the cross. There's no hierarchy in God's church. There's no one who's more valuable to God than another, more loved to God, by God than another, more cherished by God than another. We're, we're, we're all equally loved, completely loved, valued by God. You say, how do you know? Well, because you tell the value of something by the price it costs. And Jesus died on the cross, not for a select few, not, not, not partly for some and mostly for others, but completely for every one of us. In fact, if you're sitting here this morning feeling like you're not worth anything, you're worth the Son of God dying on the cross. Now that's some value. That's profound love. And we're united because we're on equal footing before the cross. The 19th century preacher British preacher Charles Spurgeon explained it this way, and we're going to go into the weeds a bit, but I think it's worth going there with him. He wrote, believers indwelt by the spirit of Christ are not uniform, but one. Uniformity, which speaks of everybody exactly alike. Uniformity may be found in death, but this unity, this oneness of heart and spirit in Christ, this unity in life. Those who are quite uniform may yet have no love for each other. I think that's important, he points that out. He says that we may all sort of seek to look alike and act alike and, and all those things, and we can find some type of, of uniformity and yet not still love each other. And he writes, while those who differ widely may still be truly and intensely one. And then he uses the example of a family. He says our children are not uniform, but they make one family. If you're a parent here and you have more than one child, you know exactly what he's talking about. I have three children. And when the first came and, and she was pretty easy, you know what I'm saying, parents? Like she sort of slept through the night or just sort of did it, you know what I mean? And I thought we were just great parents. And maybe if your first was like that, you sort of know what I'm saying. I was gonna write a book, I thought, on parenting because we were just doing so good with, with her. And then our second came and he humbled us greatly. And our third came and he humbled us even more. And, and it was interesting because I thought, man, I got this first one sort of down. And then the second one came was totally different. And it was a whole new book. You know what I'm saying? Third one, whole new book. All, all three so different. But we're one family. <laughs> one family. And Spurgeon says that's what the church is like. Different. Filled with people who are uniquely gifted. And yet one because we're one family in Christ. Jesus prays that they also may be in us. The oneness Jesus has in mind is this unity that comes from, from shared life in, in both God and, and the Son and the Spirit, this shared life in God. Jesus did not pray for uniformity and catch this or institutional unity, which I'll speak about in a moment, 
Jesus did not pray for uniformity or institutional unity among believers, but for unity rooted in love and shared nature, bringing together the many parts of Jesus' one body. See, I've had people say to me, if, if there's supposed to be unity in the church, then why are there so many denominations and why are there so many different churches? And, and for a while, I asked that question as a believer, and I thought it was sort of a negative statement of the church, but I've learned to really appreciate the different denominations in different churches because we're all different. I, I love the fact that if someone comes to me and says, you know, I'm, I'm not really clicking here at Crosswinds. Uh, I, I don't like this or that. And they can share with me. I can go, you know what? I know a church in our community I think you'll fit in really well with. I mean, I'm not trying to get rid of anybody. I, I'm just simply being helpful to the kingdom. Come on, church. At the end of the day, it's not about building crosswinds or building any other churches. It's about building God's church, isn't it? And, and not every place is for everyone. I, I, I acknowledge that. I appreciate that. I meet with a group of pastors from our community every month. First Wednesday of every month, we get together. We call it the Canandaigua Clergy Association. It's an older name. And, and, and we gather together. And we only do two things. We gather together to encourage each other and pray. And we come from all different denominations, different churches, and we sit and we, we come together and we, we encourage each other and we pray. We bring our own lunch and, and we sort of sit and, and, and chat. How's life? How's church going? What can we pray for? I love that. The one thing we do together every year is the National Day of Prayer. We pray together. We thought about having worship services together, then we realized that all of our people would be equally disappointed. <laughs> because we worship differently. Some who come to that group, to be honest with you, they like songs that were written many, many, many years ago. And that's cool for them. Me, I, I like newer songs. If you're here, you know we like newer songs. If you don't like newer songs, you probably don't like it here much. Then there's churches all in between. Some churches like what we call a high liturgy, where people stand and sit and stand a lot. And, and, and here we just stand all the time. You know, it's sort of, sort of the way we, we do things. And it's okay. It, 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 we were part of the Canandaigua Clergy Association. We're also a part of the church, Canandaigua Churches in Action, where we have a food pantry where we, where we give to those who need food together. We, we pull all of our resources. That makes sense, doesn't it? But it doesn't mean we're not different. There's a beauty in that. I, I like what the great theologian Billy Joel said. <laughs> Much of life could be answered in a Billy Joel song. I really believe that. I really do. He wrote, it's... it's whether it's the, the new, the next phase, the new wave, you know, uh, the dance craze, always, what? It's still rock and roll for me. <laughs> and, and if it's biblical, and it's putting the glory of God on display, it's worship to me. I, I have what I like, and I'm a part of what I like, but I appreciate what others do. I remember years ago, my second son, Jake, was young, and there was a Huguenot church. That's a French Huguenot church, which were French Protestants, and, and, and it was in Door County, Wisconsin. I saw that, and I thought, I want to attend that church on Sunday. And so I went to do that, and I said, does anyone want to go with me? He said, I'll go with you, Dad. And so we went to that particular church, and it, it was a very historically rooted church, and so they did things in a very historically rooted way. And it was different, and I liked it, and my son saw that I liked it, and so on the way home, he asked me, he said, Dad, did you like that service? And I said, yeah, I really did. He said, did you really like that service? I said, yeah, I really did. He said, did, did you really, really like it? And I said, what are you getting at? He goes, are we going to do that back home? And I said, no. And he went, oh, thank God. I appreciated it, but it wasn't me. 
And you know what the good news is? I didn't have to attend that church every weekend. <laughs> I had my own church family. But even in our family, we're a part of a larger family where we can be united, not necessarily in singing the same songs and having service look the same way and all, having our buildings look the but because Jesus is our Lord. Because we're one in Christ. All believers belong to the one body of Christ and their spiritual unity is to be manifest in the way that we live. What Jesus prayed for us was unity in the spirit. We're called to believe that this prayer was answered, but when Jesus prayed that the church actually is one and our failure is in failing to recognize and walk in this divine truth. We're to be united with God and other believers. Lastly, Jesus prayed, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. This is a remarkable statement. Think about what Jesus prays here. Jesus basically gave the world permission to judge the validity of his ministry based on the unity of his people. Think about that. Unity among God's people helps the world to believe that the Father sent the Son. I mean, process this with me. Even as Christ prays for his disciples in the upper room, and includes us, his followers of all time, he looks beyond us to those who have yet to believe in him, and, he's, and he, he gives us witness generated by the unity of his church. Unity. Unity. That's why it's important that we realize that we belong to God, but we also belong to his church. Pastor and author Aaron McManus wrote this. He said, home is ultimately not about a place to live, but about the people with whom you are most fully alive. Home is about love, relationship, community, and belonging. And we are all searching for home. Church is to be a place where people belong. And, and church is us. Church is, is the place we gather. I mean, when you look at scripture, it, it, there are times where the word church is used to describe a meaning place of believers. But more broadly and more profoundly, it's mostly used for us, people, followers of Jesus. We're the church. And whether we're gathering in a marriage relationship or a dating relationship or a family or, or, or corporately for worship or, or out on the street, just, just us, Jesus, and, and the world around us, we're, we're to live in such a way that shows our belonging so we can live in the abundance that God wants to pour into us so it can flow to those around us. This abundant life speaks of spiritual abundance, spiritual abundance which focuses not on duration, but on our relationship with God. I want to define it for us. The spiritual abundance is, is, is about a follower of Christ who continues to journey with him through the continual process of learning and practicing and maturing, as well as, catch us now, as well as failing and recovering and adjusting and enduring and overcoming. That, that we journey with God, but our journey is imperfect, not because God's not perfect, because we're not perfect. <laughs> been around here for a while, you know, I, I call the church a, a sacred mess. I really believe of all my heart it is. It's sacred because God's a part of it. And that's the good news. It's messy because we are. I've had people say I'd, I'd be a part of a church, but there's just a lot of imperfect people in the church. And I haven't ever said it, but I've always wanted to say, but it's a perfect place for you. <laughs> right? 
I mean, if you're imperfect, this is a great place for you because we're imperfect being perfected. We don't use our imperfections as an excuse not to act as Jesus act. We understand that in our imperfection, we come to the perfect God and his spirit works within us to make us more and more like Jesus. And the more like Jesus we become, the more we embrace and understand his love and the more we're unified with each other. And the greater the witness that those outside the wall of this building will know why Jesus came. Believers belong to God and his church and need to be raised in understanding what this means. Because listen, if we don't believe we belong to God, if we don't believe we belong to God, we'll profess we believe, but we'll then go about our life as we always have. No change, no difference. If we don't believe we belong to church, to God's church, we'll profess we believe, but then we'll go about doing life on our own terms without the benefit of community with others and unity with God. Another thing I've heard people say, I don't need to go to church to be a Christian. That's probably true. You just have to go to church to be an obedient one. Lord says, don't forsake the fellowshipping of one another. Let me share something else with you. When I try to do life on my own without the fellowship of others, my life gets really wacky. And I don't know if you've noticed this, I have. Christians who try to do life without a Christian fellowship are very wacky in their relationship with God. Come on, it's getting quiet in here. <laughs> like there's something about having brothers and sisters in Christ that I'm doing life with who can look at my life and encourage me and correct me, by the way. Who, who can say, that's good, and Craig, have you thought about that? <laughs> That's why we believe strongly in small groups because growth happens greater, community happens greater in circles than in rows. That's why I'm a part of a one-on-one. We're looking each other in the eye, brother to brother, doing life together. If we don't believe we belong to God in his church, it's not just each of us that misses out, but the world around us is without the witness Jesus prayed and offered them in his name. I believe of all my heart, it's impossible to become all Christ has for us if we don't learn to accept we belong to him and his church. We're gonna look at his becoming a little more next week. But for now, I I just wanna ask you, where are you at in this becoming journey? The first step is to believe. If you've yet to receive Christ as your Lord and Savior, the very first step is to enter into that relationship with him, to accept him as Savior and Lord of your life, and and to change your your whole position and understand this morning that when you say yes to Jesus, you're belonging to him and his church. That all that we looked at is, is something that you are a part of. And if you've made that decision, I wonder this morning, where may the spirit be sort of tapping on your heart saying, hey, take this step in belonging to me. Take this step in belonging to the church. Wherever God's calling you this morning, I pray that you'll step out in faith and and take it with him. Take that step with him. We sang a song that says, you know, fear is gone, right? Because God is so filled us and yet the reality of us we're imperfect there still may be some fear to take that next step trust me take it take it you'll never regret it so wherever we find ourselves this morning let's ask god to continue to work in our midst continue to to move us as we walk outside the walls of this church as we scatter that god would take what we've learned when we've gathered and make a difference in the world around us let's pray
Father God, it's remarkable that we could spend time this morning, invest time this morning to look at your word and to be able to read a prayer that you prayed 2,000 years ago that's a living prayer because you didn't just pray it for those who were in the upper room, you prayed it for us sitting here this morning. And what's amazing is you didn't just pray it for us, but you pray for those who are gonna receive you, maybe even in this moment, those who are gonna receive you today and tomorrow and the years to come, if you tarry. Lord God, you prayed it for those of us who believe, but there's a part of the prayer that you pray for those who have yet to believe, but those who are far from you, God, but are so close to your heart. Thank you, Lord, that we're so dearly loved by you. Thank you that when we receive Jesus as our Lord and Savior, entering into that right relationship with you, God, and, and, and taking that journey that you call us on, that we do belong to you. We do belong to your church and that you've given those of us who know you the, the, the mission in part to, to not just reach people with the love and message of Jesus Christ, but to raise each other up in the understanding of what it means to belong to you and each other. May we be found faithful in that. And may this message of unity not just speak to our own local clan. May it go much further. May it impact families in this place. May it impact marriages in this place. May it impact friendships in this place. That the world would see our unity and know that Jesus came with a purpose to seek and save all of us. Lord, again, thank you for such extravagant love. Thank you for Jesus. In your precious name we pray. Amen.